Welcome to episode 12 in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. In today's show, we'll be dealing with some good news and some bad news. Good news first. Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church of Edmonton is out of jail after spending the last month locked up for refusing to adhere to provincial public health orders halting all in-person religious services. The bad news is that the Justice Centre and all Canadians lost a court battle for religious freedom in British Columbia when the Supreme Court in Vancouver ruled against a group of churches that challenged that province's health orders prohibiting in-person church services. It was only a half-loss, really. There were two parts to that case. One part was about prohibiting church services. The second part was about prohibiting outdoor protests. Now, they won the day on the part about the protests. Good news, bad news. John, why don't you expound on the good news about Pastor Coates first? Pastor James Coates is a free man. As of Monday, March 22nd, he was allowed out of jail after one month and six days behind bars uh, for violating the charter violating health orders that Jason Kenney and uh, sidekick Dina Hinshaw have imposed on Alberta. Uh, Pastor Coates was in jail charged with uh, violating the health orders. And at one point in time, police had also imposed an undertaking on him. Normally an undertaking is a solemn promise that you make voluntarily, but apparently uh, the lawyers on my team with more criminal law knowledge than me tell me that the the police can impose an undertaking on people that they don't even agree with mm. or agree to. Uh, because at no time had Pastor Coates ever agreed to abide by unscientific and unconstitutional health orders that violate his uh, freedoms of uh, expression and association and peaceful assembly and worship and so on. Uh, but the police had imposed this undertaking on him that, you know, he was to make this promise to, to abide by these unconstitutional health orders going forward. He never agreed to that. And then he was criminally charged with failing to abide by an undertaking. Now that charge was withdrawn. One of the two health charges was withdrawn. Uh, the other health charge is going to trial May 3rd to 5th, and it will be the Alberta government's health orders themselves, which will be on trial. And so um, the Crown and the defense together put a joint submission before the judge that uh, Pastor Coates pay a $100 fine um, as uh, for, for pleading guilty to, uh, to violating a health order. And the judge didn't like that. And rejected it and said it's going to be 1500 However, uh, because Pastor Coates had spent a year and six months in prison, he does not have a to year. pay. A month and A month and six days, wasn't it? Did I say a year and six months? Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe, it felt, maybe it felt that way for him and his loved ones. <laughs> I, I don't know. But yeah, no, because he had spent a month and six days in prison, um, he does not have to pay the 1500 and the judge apparently had some harsh words for uh, for Pastor Coates. Yes, I uh, saw the news story, and it said that he was given the judge gave him a tongue lashing, and he had ringing in his ears, and the judge lambasted him. I mean, this I, this is a story that you sent me uh, by David Nainer. I haven't sourced it yet. I think it's probably a a uh, journal Edmonton Journal story. But anyways, uh, yeah, quite the. Uh, quite the Dickensian description of this courtroom scene that uh, Judge Jeffrey Champion gave to Coates and his lawyers via video. Anyways, uh, yeah. So it Judge sounds- Champion said, quote, he wants to make, a st- Pastor Coates wants to make a statement that he cannot be bound by the undertaking, but I want to make a statement about people who refuse to obey public health orders during a pandemic, said Champion. So, this is a judge who blithely and perhaps blindly just 
assumes that everything spoken out at the six o'clock news must be true because I mean, you know, media would never lie or certainly not on a large scale. Refusing to obey public health orders, which happen to violate the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which Judge Champion should know is the supreme law of Canada, not uh, the health orders that are uh, promulgated on a weekly or monthly basis by unelected, unaccountable chief medical officers. So it's not quite as simple, you know, uh, but mm-hmm. the judge says, I want to make a statement about people who refuse to obey public health orders during during a pandemic. So there too, you see this, this uh, unquestioning assumption uh, buying into the government narrative that's been shoved down our throats for the last 13 months that COVID is this unusually deadly killer, you know, as though this is the Spanish flu or the bubonic plague and people are just dropping dead right, left and center. Which, again, reality check, when you take Alberta, for example, 27,000 people dying every year. And so we've had somewhere around 1,500 people out of 27,000 uh, de- who, uh, who died with COVID, uh, not necessarily of COVID. Uh, this is not, these are not shocking statistics. This is the reality of death. There's mm-hmm. over 500 people that die every week in Alberta. Over 2,000 people die every month in Alberta. And it's the likes of Jason Kenney and the chief medical officer and the media that sensationalize uh, COVID deaths, three quarters of which are amongst elderly people who are already sick with things like cancer, emphysema, heart disease, so on and so forth. And, you know, I've, I've asked a number of people, I mean, if, if somebody's, you know, 85 years old or 95 years old and they're dying, um, is it is it more sad or less sad because the person died uh, four months earlier or four months later? You know, it's uh, the way that we've always measured the dangerousness of disease is by uh, impact on years of life lost. And if there is a disease or another cause of death, you know, car accidents, lightning strikes, uh, whatever. If there is a disease that is killing children and killing people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, that disease gets taken more seriously than a disease that is largely limited to people that are already at the end of their lives. And in cases of, of long-term care homes, I mean, these are it's been characterized by national post columnist as end of life care. It's not quite a hospice. Uh, hospice, you're definitely you, you know you got four months or or sorry you got four weeks or you know eight weeks or twelve weeks to live. That's a hospice. Long term mm-hmm. care is not quite a hospice, uh, but it is very much end of end of life care for people that are in very poor health and uh, and typically very elderly uh, as well. So. To hear a judge blithely, you know, wants to make a statement about people who refuse to obey public health orders during a pandemic. Uh, obviously, this judge believes, you know, Neil Ferguson and Imperial College that uh, this is some horrific plague that is just uh, killing huge numbers of people and really shortening lifespans. Well, maybe he's not aware that, uh, you know, the WHO redefined what a pandemic is. A lot of people are under that misapprehension, right? You know, it's uh, simply a matter of uh, them redefining it to be a disease that is spread around the world as opposed to a deadly disease. And so, yeah, I'm, maybe the and that was in 2009? 2009, 2008. I'll, I'll nail it down. Close around, around there. Yeah. But that's something that would be available on the World Health Organization website, their mm-hmm. uh, change, change of definition. Yeah. Well, see, here's here's another abusive language issue, right? The that 13 months ago, the word case referred to a sick person. So, if you talked mm-hmm. about a thousand cases of of breast cancer or a thousand cases of of the annual flu or a thousand cases of the common cold, it referred to people who were actually sick, not somebody who might have common cold virus floating around in their body, but they're not. They don't have a runny nose or any of the symptoms. So the word case used to refer to a sick person, but now the media tells us, oh, well, you know, you have 2,000 new cases of COVID in Ontario, as if there's 2,000 sick people. And so the same thing with the word pandemic, it appropriately struck, that word would have been used for something like the Spanish flu 100 years ago, which was very deadly and did go all over the world uh, with the 
helpful assistance of World War One, you know, made mm-hmm. things especially bad. You had a whole bunch of soldiers on a ship because uh, you didn't fly across the Atlantic in those days. And if the Spanish flu broke out on the ship and all the soldiers are living together in close quarters. So that was a pandemic. It was worldwide, but it was it was a deadly killer. Uh, it was at least 750 times as deadly as COVID, right? Mm-hmm. There's just no comparison, even though Jason Kenney has, has publicly compared uh, COVID to the Spanish flu on uh, on more than one occasion. So, yeah, the word pandemic uh, there too, you know, the, the, yeah, the judge doesn't know that it's been redefined. So now we have technically a pandemic because COVID is all over the world, but the government's own data and statistics to the extent that you can even trust them. And we've had public health authorities say that anybody with COVID in their body is deemed to have died of COVID. Even taking the government stats at face value, this is not the scourge that the fear-mongering media and chief medical officers and politicians are making it out to be. But uh, God help us if uh, if the judges are, you know, buying the media narrative and uh, believing everything that they hear on the six o'clock news to be true. Right. Actually, I didn't pick up on the fact that he actually didn't have to pay the fine in this story. That's my understanding. I'll, if, okay. if I'm wrong, I'll correct it next week. But I, it's my information that uh, he does not have to pay the $1,500 fine by virtue of the uh, prison time served. Solitary confinement, it says here. That's, uh, you know, that was my understanding initially. And it was mm-hmm. not... Not quite. The situation was this. He was he was in uh, a cell with a cellmate, so it wasn't solitary. Uh, certainly it was confinement, but he and his cellmate could only get out two 15-minute breaks a day that they could get out of the cell to take a shower or make a phone call. So 20, and I've also heard two 15-minute breaks, but either way, pretty darn short, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So he had to spend, uh, for the first two weeks in prison, he had to spend 23 hours and 20 minutes at least in that cell with one other person. So not quite solitary confinement in the way that you might see it, you know, portrayed in movies where you're actually locked up by yourself in a, you know, in a little space. So he did have a cellmate. After the first two weeks were up, he was in a more common area of the prison and he had, he was allowed out of his cell, I believe, about five hours a day in total, probably not in one stretch. So after the first two weeks, he could make more calls to more people. And I heard that he addressed his church by telephone one Sunday. Hmm. And, um, but, uh, I'm really happy for him to get reunited with his, uh, with his wife and kids and loved ones. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. It's, he's not, he has nothing else going forward at this point. In other words, there's no, there's there just the May 3rd court? trial, May 3rd trial. Okay. All right. But the and, big, uh, you, the big, the big thing on trial on May 3rd, I never get tired of saying it. It's the government's health orders will be on trial on May 3rd and the government's going to have to back up its health orders with some real evidence. The government will have to prove in court that asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of the virus. And, uh, Oh, several weeks ago, I asked Stephen Buick, right. what's, what's the government's science? Where, where's the science of the Alberta government to back up its belief that asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of COVID? And here we are about going on close to two months and Alberta government is not responding to the question, but they will have to respond on May 3rd and persuade the court that healthy asymptomatic people are spreading the virus. Yes, actually, that's a nice segue into our next topic, because when I was looking at this week's stories, one of the things I was bandying about for calling this episode, which, of course, I don't know the content of until we record it, but I was thinking of calling it asymptomatic equity because of what I read in the judgment in the BC case, because we had the judgment come down in the BC case where we had Marty Moore discuss uh, the courtroom Uh, scene. And uh, we can get into that in a minute here. But one of the things that caught my eye in that judgment was that the judge accepted in the background, the notion of asymptomatic spread. He said, yep, it's right there. Oh yeah. As long as we've got asymptomatic spread, then I guess everything has to be uh, as per Bonnie Henry. Anyways, let's get into it. Tell us about what happened. You consider this a loss, even though half of it was a victory, half of it was a loss because they won the uh, section on the protests. But 
on the church uh, gatherings they lost. Give it to us, John. Well, the BC Supreme Court ruled against the churches uh, that were the focal point of this court action was the arbitrary distinction between Dr. Bonnie Henry, the chief health officer in BC, arbitrary distinction between uh, gyms and restaurants and bars and big box stores are all allowed to be open. And and I, I do think that there are you know requirements for mask wearing and social distancing and capacity limits and, and, and that sort of thing. All of which, by the way, are predicated on the government's belief in asymptomatic spread. But uh, churches are closed entirely, even churches, not like Pastor James Coates, who was saying, you know, these... <laughs> These health orders are unscientific and uh, COVID's not the so-called pandemic that, uh, you know, that Neil Ferguson and, and other fear-mongering people are making it out to be. But these churches in BC were complying with capacity limits, social distancing, hand sanitizing, mask wearing, etc. Even with that kind of compliance, uh, Bonnie Henry shut them down entirely as of November and so our court action was fixated on how unscientific and arbitrary these distinctions are. And we submitted uh, uh, affidavits from expert, uh, from from two doctors. So Dr. Just a minute, uh, Dr. Warren and Dr. Kettner. The court documents should be posted at www.jccf.ca. And uh, the judge just completely disregarded these affidavits entirely on very specious grounds Specious ground being that they were not submitted to Dr. Bonnie Henry prior to November when she issued the health orders closing churches. Yeah. Because in court, you have a procedure called judicial review. And judicial review, the evidence is limited to the record that was before the decision maker. Okay. It's not a bad principle. This would be in a situation, let's say a university prof gets uh, gets his employment terminated and he gets taken to court for judicial review. What the court looks at is what is the record that was before the university president that he or she took into account? And on a judicial review, you cannot add further evidence, right? It's limited to the record that was before the decision maker. So that is not, it's not a bad principle. It's, you got to have some parameters and rules. And so on a judicial review, you don't adduce uh, other evidence. However, uh, where the, where the judge made what I think is a huge mistake is that the court action challenged all of the health orders, not just the one in November, but all the ones that came roughly once every two weeks, once a month, whenever, all these other health orders from November right on through into February, all of these health orders were challenged. And the most recent health order before the hearing was was a health order February 10th, which once again kept the churches closed. Bonnie Henry received these affidavits and all of the expert evidence that tore a hole through the government's case that, that somehow bars and restaurants and, and gyms and big box stores, uh, they can all operate, uh, but churches cannot, right? Mm. We destroyed the government's case with our evidence. And then the judge chose to ignore the evidence and said, well, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't part of the record before the decision maker, which is not true, which is not correct, which is not accurate because we, provided this expert evidence to Bonnie Henry on January the 29th. 12 days later, she issued another health order on February the 10th, and she kept the houses of worship closed. So this evidence was, in fact, before Bonnie Henry. It was part of the record. And so the judge is correct to say, you know, we're only going to look at the evidence that was placed before the decision maker, that's fine. That's that's correct law, except for this not small error, uh, the fact that she got this on the 29th and that uh, she issued another order, which we challenged because we were challenging all the orders. We said that very clearly in the statement of claim. We challenged the one in November that shut down the, the, uh, the churches and each and every order thereafter. So the judge just uh, ignored our evidence 
from medical doctors. We had over a thousand pages. We had data. We had statistics. We had expert medical reports. And this was all ignored uh, on the specious ground that, well, this doesn't count because it was, uh, wasn't was before Bonnie Henry when she closed the churches. So that's that's a very ah. serious error. That's appealable and things like that, or as you sure is. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. You're the you're the lawyer, so you tell me. All right. So what? Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to wonder. I I was wondering what other uh, grounds you might have in there that you're considering for an appeal. Has an appeal been filed, or are you going to consider appeal at at this point? I know uh, things don't move that quickly. We have we have thirty days to think about it. Okay. So um, and and to get instructions from clients. So right. I would say within the next 30 days, everybody will know, and it might be it might be sooner than 30 days. Right. Anything else in this decision that you liked or didn't like? Go ahead. Or that is appealable? Well, the worst the worst part of it is he, uh, he just doesn't, uh, he, he just ignores very compelling evidence as to how irrational, unscientific, and arbitrary the BC government policy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we put we put evidence before the court as well about outbreaks that there were, and I think Marty referred to this last week. That out of you know eighty thousand cases, there were what was the number eighty? It was it was a tiny tiny fraction. One hundred eighty. Uh, one hundred eighty out of eighty thousand. Yeah, out of eighty thousand were attributed to churches, and so it kind of reminds me of Trudeau's prison hotels. Right? There's no. Mm. It's like international travel is supposedly responsible for what, you know, 1%, 2% or a fraction, 1.2% of, of COVID spread. So, ooh, let's go after this and shut down international travel and destroy the tourism industry and uh, put women into hotels with uh, doors that don't have locks on them so they can get sexually assaulted. Uh, nothing's too good for uh, fighting COVID. Yeah, I don't think that was the plan, but I guess that maybe we can get into that a little later because you actually have some stories on that. But yeah, on this decision, so you say the that's BC the decision. Main thing. Yeah, pardon me. Yeah, so the 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 judge throughout he he takes Bonnie Henry's words as gospel truth, and it's kind mm-hmm. of a circular reasoning. You know, we we know that this is a really dangerous pandemic that is a serious threat to everybody because Bonnie Henry says so. Yeah. And it's not, he doesn't delve into and actually ask any of the uh, hard questions that uh, that are being asked of him. He says at one point, well, one of the goals of public health is to prevent and manage outbreaks of disease. So here we get the media confusion about cases, which are not outbreaks because the cases, 97% mm-hmm. of them are not sick people. But he quotes, uh, or he, he states, uh, the goals of public health is to prevent and manage outbreaks of disease within the population. Dr. Henry bears the formidable responsibility of making the decisions that are intended to protect us from the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, here we go. All the scary language. Yes, protect us from a virus that is not a threat to 90% of the population. And for the 10% that are threatened by them, uh, Bonnie Henry, if the nursing home death stats in British Columbia are the same as they are elsewhere in Canada, Dr. Bonnie Henry failed miserably in protecting the vulnerable seniors in nursing homes from COVID. And now some people at this point, they say, oh, but you you can't, you can't keep, I've, I've heard uh, an MLA member of the Legislative Assembly say, oh, but you can't keep COVID out of nursing homes. It's impossible. To which I say, okay, so why are we subjecting the entire population to all kinds of harm and destruction by way of lockdowns that go on forever if if it's true that you can't keep COVID out of the nursing homes. If that's not, if that's not even possible, like what are we doing? You know, trying trying <laughs> to contain trying to contain a virus that cannot be contained. I'm not sure that's exactly what we're doing. We may be doing something else a little more nefarious, but that's probably a conspiracy theory for another day. So. So the judge continues, against the serious risks that are associated with the pandemic. Yes, hear that. The serious risks. Serious risks for a virus that has not impacted population life expectancy. I mean, these are not serious risks. Yes, it's a virus that will shorten by two, four, six, eight months, 12 months. It'll shorten the lives of some individuals who are already elderly and already very sick with 
cancer and emphysema and heart disease and other conditions. But reading this, it just sounds like it sounds like they're describing the Spanish flu, some deadly killer that, you know, people are just dropping left, right and center, dropping like flies. When the truth is that a child has a child's chance of getting struck by lightning is about the same as a child's chance of dying of COVID. And uh, unless you're in a nursing home, you run a greater risk of death or serious injury from getting into a vehicle as a driver or as a passenger than you do of COVID. So you get all this dramatic hyperbole, and the judge is basically parroting the six o'clock news, which he can afford to do when he hasn't really looked at the evidence, because the evidence will get you to notice that what you're being told on the six o'clock news is simply not true. It's fear-mongering. I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern here between the Coates case and this one, which is that the judges seem to be perfectly willing to accept at face value what they're hearing on the six o'clock news. In other words, we have a deadly pandemic. What are you people doing? Shame on you. Shame on you for not paying homage to the deadly pandemic by, you know, gracefully, meekly submitting to the violation of your human dignity and your human rights and your fundamental charter freedoms. Yeah, shame sure. on you. Well, we can get all shirty about that, uh, except that it looks like if this is a pattern going forward, this could be a difficulty in court because they're just going to ignore all the medical evidence, scientific evidence, and just go with what they want, go with what the government wants in order to justify this power grab. Or that is justify- a danger. Yeah. But here's, I mean, here's some good news. Okay. In this, in the sentencing of Pastor Coates, the judge was not presented with the evidence that shows that what we're told on the six o'clock news is, uh, you know, have truths and exaggerations and very misleading. He wasn't ruling on that. Um, okay. So, you know, and, and now in this case, the judge was presented with compelling evidence that the, British Columbia distinction between houses of worship versus uh, gyms, bars, restaurants, and big box stores is unscientific and arbitrary and just doesn't make any sense. He ignored all of that evidence. And he quotes Dr. Henry saying that on February 12th, Dr. Henry was asked why, and this is not under oath in a cross-examination, this would have been presumably at at a news conference. On February 12th, Dr. Henry was asked why safety protocols accepted in other circumstances such as bars, restaurants, and health clubs, were not sufficient for regular in-person religious services. She replied that the nature of the interaction, the social interaction within a faith group, was, quote, fundamentally different than some of the transactional relationships we have if we're going to a store or even an individual working out in a gym, an individual going to a restaurant with your small group of people. So, the judge, of course, doesn't describe what a transactional relationship is. If he's talking about uh, more hugging, um, <laughs> no, maybe no, he should I... just talk about more hugging and less hugging. But I'd like to see the evidence on that. Let's get a social scientist in there who has done actual research on what is the nature of interactions at church services versus the nature of interactions at bars. Are people closer together? And what difference would it make anyway, since these churches in BC that were in court were following the social distancing, mask wearing, hand sanitizing, and capacity limits? These churches were following all those protocols. And so Dr. Bunny Henry creates out of thin air this strange concept of transactional relationships. I hope the ones in her life are more meaningful than that, but you know, whatever that is, transactional relationship. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I keep thinking, whenever I hear that, I think, you know, exchange of money, they're buying something. Maybe they're in a bar paying to be there. I'm not sure what they mean by that. At this point, I'd like to refer to that video that both of us were sent by uh, someone mm. in the Justice Center, where uh, it's an interview with the Premier of British Columbia, and he makes the statement or the justification when the comparison is made between churches and other groups. The reason we let the other groups open up is because. Well, they actually receive a paycheck or they are part of the economy and we had to balance the economy against the pandemic. And so we decided to open up this and keep the churches closed, which of course, you know, obviously the virus will be able to distinguish between somebody getting a paycheck and, you know, somebody that's just going to church for 
You know, oh, it's the smart virus, Kevin. I mean, in <laughs> Quebec, the virus has mutated in Quebec to a point where it can tell whether it's before 8 p.m. or after 8 p.m. Because after 8 p.m., the virus gets very vicious outdoors, even though normally the virus is not transmitted outdoors between people. But after 8 p.m. in Quebec, uh, everybody's locked up in their house Unless you have a dog and you take your dog for a walk, because this virus also knows the difference between those walking a dog and not. The dog is like, um, what do you call it? It's like a talisman. <laughs> Don't start with the dog jokes again. <laughs> the dog I was is say, a this talisman. Is the Quebec variation. <laughs> the Quebec virus is afraid of dogs. And so when you're outside walking your dog, even though the virus is really vicious uh, against people outside after 8 p.m., but when yeah. you're walking a dog, the virus, it's afraid of the dog and it will stay away from you. So the, the dog is a talisman that protects you from the virus. The yes, virus yes. also knows the difference between an anti-racism protest where people are shoulder to shoulder, side by side, versus yes. an anti-lockdown protest because the virus does not spread during anti-racism protests. We know that from the response of the politicians and the chief medical officers who uh, applauded or at least you know took no umbrage at the Massive anti-racism protests. That was okay. But now these lockdown protests, my goodness, are just a dire threat to public health. And we need to issue $1,000 tickets and break them up. Yes. Yeah. So just to be clear, you were talking about the Quebec variant and the BLM variant of the virus, right? Yes. Yeah, the Black, the Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter variant of the virus yeah, so does not spread outdoors out during demonstrations. Mm. Yeah. we got to get our science right here. Okay. Right on. Okay. On to the Justice Center variant. <laughs> so you've got you've got the judge here who just accepts unquestioningly whatever uh, words come out of Bonnie Henry's mouth or whatever ink comes out of her pen onto paper. Speaking figuratively, because you know these days everything's typed up by computers, but uh, whatever she says is true. So if Bonnie Henry says that there's a dangerous pandemic that we should all be afraid of, well then that's true. And if Bonnie Henry says that the lockdown measures are effective at saving lives, then we have to accept that as truth. And if Bonnie Henry says that, uh, you know, COVID uh, doesn't spread as readily in stores and bars and restaurants and pubs and gyms as it does in churches, well, then that too is, uh, is, is scientific truth that we just have to accept. Okay. All kidding aside, then, looking at this judgment in total, do you think this is going to affect your cases in other areas, uh, your other cases? I know this was specific to the churches, as we keep repeating. This was very different from the cases where you're actually, you know, challenging the law. But the 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 fact that you lost this, is this going to change your tactics at all? Do you see any any lessons learned here going forward? For, well, we're uh, we're surprised. We're surprised by the judge incorrectly and inappropriately disregarding compelling evidence that was put before Bonnie Henry prior to her February tenth uh, health order maintaining the closure of churches. And I, part of me, uh, you know, I could understand why judges want to avoid this because. Who knows, if they actually saw the evidence, they might be persuaded to rule against the government's health orders. And then uh, the judge would be wildly popular in some circles, but wildly unpopular in others because he'd be faced, he or she would be faced with uh, a whole bunch of angry people saying, what's wrong with you? Don't you listen to the six o'clock news? Don't you understand that this is a dangerous, deadly killer that we should all be afraid of? Don't you understand that lockdowns are saving lives? What's wrong with you? Don't you get this? And you know, a courageous judge would say, well, the decision speaks for itself. You know, judges appropriately do not do media interviews about their judgments. The mm -hmm. idea, the understanding is that the, the decision speaks for itself. But uh, judges looking at the evidence, I don't, I don't see how they could, based on evidence, uh, buy into the government and, and media narrative. But here in the BC Supreme Court, we see, first I quoted from Dr. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry with her uh, transactional relationships, again, kind of creepy. And then we see the judge, uh, the key, it refers to the key distinguishing factors relied on by Dr. Henry in restricting religious gatherings 
including the ages of the participants, the intimate setting of religious gatherings, and the presence of communal singing or chanting in religious gatherings. Well, not every church is a huggy church. Uh, some churches are, some aren't. But these churches were observing the social distancing. So I don't know how the church is more intimate than a restaurant. And in terms of how closely people interact with each other, you think about your typical restaurant, you've got the hostess that's walking around all over the place and uh, escorting people from the front door to their table back and forth, round and round. And you've got waiters, waitresses, uh, busboys, and so on, clearing off tables. You've got all kinds of interactions going on at, at the restaurant. It's a more busy place than, than uh, what a church is with more interactions. Um, but again, both places are having social distancing protocols. So what it really boils down to, and this is, again, buying into the government's unscientific belief that healthy people are significant spreaders of the disease, if we assume that to be true for a moment, how dangerous or not a restaurant is or a church would depend on each individual restaurant. Mm -hmm. And some restaurants are more spaced out and have fewer people in them, and some restaurants are tighter, and some churches are bigger and have people further spaced apart. Uh, some churches are more formal and conservative, and people are maybe less chatty during the service. Uh, I think that the social gatherings after churches have been illegal for the past 12 months anyways. Uh, so we're only talking about an in-church service. And there's quite a lot of churches have very conservative, you know, you walk in, you mind your own business, especially some of the more liturgical, you know, Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, there's kind of an un unwritten rule that, you know, you're not supposed to chat with people in the church. You're supposed to be praying before the service starts, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas other churches would be more different and it's totally fine and even desirable that you go and you say hello to people before the church service begins. That would vary from church to church. It doesn't boil down to any kind of a distinction between churches versus restaurants. Right. In this uh, judgment, there is a uh, section that uh, says, we also know there is a demographic that goes to many faith services that is older and more at risk in some cases. So we need to take that into account. So why can't that be taken into account by having people who feel afraid of the virus? And in some cases, legitimately, right? Some people feel afraid and they have no grounds, but other people, they're afraid of COVID and they have every reason to be afraid of COVID. Why don't those people enjoy church by Zoom? Because mm -hmm. even... Even the churches that are open, typically, uh, it's my understanding, they will also have a live streamed Zoom service. Right. So anybody, so if you're in the 10% of people and it's only 10% that are vulnerable because you're you're elderly and you have a serious pre-existing health condition, or even in in the case of a very small number of people, maybe you're, you're 60, 50, 40, 30, and you've got a particular health condition. If you're vulnerable, don't go to church. It's yeah. that simple. It's the same yeah. reason these people won't go to restaurants. Uh, there's a friend of mine, very intelligent, educated, 53-year-old engineer, uh, perfectly healthy, and he's afraid of COVID and wouldn't, uh, you know, pre-lockdowns, we used to have lunch in restaurants, and now uh, we don't have lunch in restaurants anymore because he's scared of COVID. You know, you can protect yourself that way. But why, why strip other people of, of all of their rights and freedoms uh, without a medical or scientific basis? Mm -hmm. Well, they made mention of this uh, several times, actually, you know, uh, the, the fact that older people are more at risk. Well, at least they're acknowledging that. Maybe they should, should put an age limit on church. Or they should put an age limit on restaurants. And why right. doesn't Bonnie Henry, if she's, if she's that serious about what she's saying here, why doesn't Bonnie Henry... Uh, passed the, the health order saying that uh, people over 70 are not allowed to go to a restaurant mm -hmm. or a church. Right. I don't know. She wouldn't do that. <laughs> True. Okay. Who knows what she was. Uh, but that, I mean, that's what I was trying to point out there. The fact that they seem to be acknowledging, you know, this older group is at risk and we only have one solution. You know, so what's well, ironic, you know, they they some of the chief medical officers, certainly the Saskatchewan chief medical officer outright lied uh, back in some point in 2020 when he said, oh, yeah, because there was one younger person, I don't know, some 20s, 30s, 40s that died uh, of COVID or died with COVID. Who knows? And uh, 
the chief medical officer stated publicly, this is a warning as to why we should all be afraid of COVID because this doesn't just target uh, elderly people. And we've had Jason Kenney and Dina Henshaw making similar public assertions in Alberta that we should all be afraid. And now when it's time to roll out the vaccines, what's happening? Oh, now the health authorities are suddenly saying, oh, but we got to give the vaccine first to all the people in the nursing homes and all the elderly vulnerable people. Yeah. Oh, really? But I thought it was just a threat to everybody. You know, those people in their 20s, 30s and 40s should also be living in a state of fear. Yeah. Why, why not just hand out the vaccines, you know, equally to all age groups? Yeah, but that's been the problem with this whole sh- show, you know, is the fact that it's been so inconsistent throughout. You know, we hear one thing one month, next month, everything's changed, you know, and somehow we're supposed to, you know, just follow the narrative wherever it leads, as long as it justifies what the government is doing. Uh, just to go back to the uh, issue of the federal hotels, I noted that uh, you had said basically what you had said in a column that you had just printed in the post-millennial titled, It's Time to Close Trudeau's Dirty and Dangerous Quarantine, quarantine Hotels. We're getting a lot of information on this. Uh, I understand that we're getting a lot of uh, feedback from people that are associated with Justice Center and from people, other people as well. Maybe you want to feed us a little bit of that stuff. Well, anything I say about the hotels, I may have said before, but I mean, the brief recap is we've had reports of sexual assaults and then, you know, far less important, but still uh, newsworthy or noteworthy is just that that some of them are, are uh, dirty and people are being charged exorbitant amounts for food. People are being charged exorbitant amounts for food that they don't receive at all. And we've had at least one situation where had a whole bunch of angry, hungry uh, people congregating together in the lobby demanding why why there's no food. This is the exact opposite of what the federal policy you think is trying to avoid having people mix and mingle, you know, based on this unscientific theory that that asymptomatic people are dangerous spreaders. And the other thing I don't get is, okay, if it's true that healthy asymptomatic people are spreaders, well, wouldn't you want them to go from the airport straight home and have as little contact with others as possible? Uh, maybe even force them to to rent a car, right? Know, yeah. Drive down so they're not, you know, endangering the lives of of uh, some you know taxi driver. Like, how does it make sense to transport people to, from a, an airport to a hotel and then have them there for three days? And then we've had reports from people that that they were supposedly allowed out for two twenty minute walks. You know, kind of the same generosity extended to Pastor Coates when he was in prison. Um, and uh, going out for walks multiple times a day anyways. And you get, you know, hungry, angry people congregating in the hotel lobby. How does any of that help to reduce the spread? Again, if we accept for a moment the, the government's unscientific belief that uh, healthy asymptomatic people are spreading the virus. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I, I one email that I read, I'm not sure if this was something that we're allowed to talk about because it was a kind of an internal thing, but uh, somebody was mentioning in one of these emails that people are actually ignoring the quarantine, paying a fine and just going yes. home. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Is that what's happening? We're, we're yes. Uh, that's been happening for a long time. Oh, okay. Uh, we're representing several people that came to the airport and said, I'm going straight home. I'm not going to your quarantine hotel. And they were issued a ticket of uh, $3,450, which is pretty steep. Wow. And I think they I think they picked that high price tag uh, because if it was any less than 2000 you would have a financial incentive to just take the ticket and go home <laughs> rather than spend $2,000 to, uh, to be in a hotel. Which, by the way, we've had cases of people that got their COVID test results back after like in within 24 hours and they left the hotel and they still had to pay the full 2000 for three days. They couldn't get any part of their money back. We've had that problem as well. So, I mean, it's a complete gong show. And worst of all, it's a nightmare. My, my heart goes out to the women that were sexually assaulted. And just this idiocy of removing locks from the inside of the door so that you can't lock your own hotel room that you're forcibly confined in. So anybody else that's got access to one of these magnetic room keys can yeah. just zap it and walk in and sexually assault you. 
I mean, you just yeah, speechless. Yeah, the caption so should read exasperated look on John's face here. <laughs> <laughs> if we had captions. <laughs> so we're we're um, we're representing people that are simply walking away with a three thousand four hundred and fifty dollar ticket, and we will defend those people in court. And it'll be the same strategy, the same tactic again. Okay, federal government, uh, show us the evidence as to why these policies were necessary. And then the onus is on the government to show that there's a link between uh, deaths in nursing homes where uh, 80% of the alleged COVID deaths are taking place in uh, in nursing homes. What's the link between COVID deaths in nursing homes and international travel? Mm. Well, the government would have to show us the evidence. And what was wrong with people quarantining at home, which most people were doing because Canadians are law-abiding and whatever, right? So yeah. th- there was no... Uh, the government would have to show that there's this huge problem, that there's this massive disobedience with uh, people not quarantining at home for 14 days. They'd have to show that. They'd have to show that asymptomatic people spread the virus. They'd have to show that the virus is the unusual, uh, unusually deadly killer that Neil Ferguson told us it was 13 months ago. They'd have to prove all of that at trial. And you can get that trial simply by pleading not guilty to a ticket. Mm. And that's what's happening with Pastor Coates' trial in Alberta in May. Yeah. I know, but I'm still kind of on the, I'm still bummed out about the BC decision. And I keep thinking, well, all the judge has to do is pretend like, you know, he knows what the evidence is and uh, your evidence, he doesn't have to weigh it because he's weighing it against the six o'clock news. And well, ignoring, accepted. ignoring evidence is a serious error of law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is not what we expected. And I think that uh, the, the evidence we had, the government had hardly any evidence. They just had uh, Bonnie Henry's speeches Right. which the judge just has taken at face value as being gospel truth. And, uh, uh, but if, if the evidence had been reviewed, uh, we had the evidence that shows that uh, the BC government's closure of churches vis-a-vis keeping the, the restaurants open was uh, just had no science behind it. Mm-hmm. That's the evidence that we did have before the court. And so, the the lawyers uh, Brandon Langjom and Paul Jaffe and Marty Moore, being the primary three, they worked very very hard on this. They did a very very good job, and uh, the bad outcome is not in any way uh, poor reflection on on them or on their work. Right, of course, and as we noted at the beginning, half of it was a victory because the uh, the judge acknowledged that the protesting rights were violated and they were unreasonable. So I guess all churches have to do is just say they're protesting from now on, I guess. Is that it? No? Yeah. This is a peaceful protest. <laughs> well, you know, there too. I mean, these standards are, are utterly vague. Uh, one of the principles of law is that laws should be clear, right? And, and courts will strike down laws that are vague. Mm. Uh, law has to be clear enough that you actually know whether you're violating it or not. And so Bonnie Henry's order is that outdoor protests are banned, uh, except if they are in respect of a matter of public controversy. And right. I think that's just idiotic. When do people go out and protest about something that is not a matter of public controversy? Can you name me one protest you've ever seen about, you know, whether uh, man-made climate change or abortion or taxes or uh, Black Lives Matter or lockdowns? I mean, can you think of one protest you've ever seen or, or heard about or participated in that did not involve a matter of public controversy? Uh, I mean, it's idiotic. How about the Vancouver hockey riots? Uh, that- <laughs> That wasn't really a protest. Oh, that's right? a good point. That's a good point. Oh, but those were riots. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They weren't protests. Yeah. Okay. Those would be those would be legitimately illegal in my view because your right to peaceful protest does not include the right to destroy somebody else's property or to to loot or burn or riot. That is not protected by the uh, charter's freedoms of uh, peaceful assembly, freedom of expression. Not covered. Mm-hmm. So. Laws against that kind of behavior are legitimate and necessary, and I advocate for their full enforcement. Yeah, I was simply trying to 
digging in my brain very quickly trying to find something that wasn't a matter of public. Yes, yeah, so you can't you can't think of public you can't think you can't think of a single example of a protest that was not about a matter of public controversy. Yeah, um, well, I don't see the point, right? You know, I mean, it's yeah. Uh, why, well, <laughs> you know, I think human nature already has a little bit of a predisposition towards laziness, or maybe I'll speak for myself only. But you know, why would you take time out of your day and drive somewhere, take a bus somewhere to go uh, take part in a protest that is not a matter of public controversy? I mean, what kind of protest would that be? But I think Bonnie Henry wants to look good by saying, "Oh, you know, well." Well, these outdoor protests are banned. Oh, yeah, except if it's about a matter of public controversy. Okay, so they're not banned. Right, okay. But the judge actually ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in that case, right? So it's not a matter yes. of... Yes. So that is an actual win there. Yes, Even absolutely. Even though it is so, a deadly so it's, pandemic it's a, with asymptomatic spread, all this stuff he said in the background at the beginning that... Uh, so yeah, I wish Marty were here because I don't know if they actually presented that science. Did they, uh, in the, the background that I read in the decision, which will be posted, it is already posted at the Justice Center site, as he mentioned earlier. You can read it for yourself, the background there. It, it doesn't really cite where he's getting it from. And that's what I was wondering, um, whether it was something that the the government lawyers had presented or not. I know that they had some- well, I'll get Marty back on next week. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, now we're moving into our next big one. What's our next big court case here? Is it the May 3rd? Is that the next big court date in terms of uh, what's coming? April up? the April the 21st to the 30th will be the Manitoba court hearing. Okay. And right. uh, we're going to, that, that'll be evidence there mm -hmm. that is put before the court. And we're challenging the constitutionality of, of the health orders. All right. So we saw BC court disregard the evidence. Uh, I think it'll be tougher for the Manitoba court to do that. But, uh, well, here's a hypothetical question. Just sort of, um, if you guys had challenged only the February order, then he couldn't have applied that law. Is that what you're saying? The fact is you guys challenged all the orders or is that why we did challenge, we challenged all of the orders, including yeah. the February, the 10th order. And Bonnie Henry had that, uh, evidence before her yeah. about how irrational, arbitrary, and unscientific her church closure was. She had that evidence before her as of January the 29th. February 10th, she issued another health order uh, maintaining churches closed. Yeah. And uh, that February 10th health order was also being challenged by us in court. Yeah. Okay. No, this way back at the beginning of the podcast, I was talking about you guys having to change tactics. That's why I'm wondering, based on what the judge did here, do you have to sort of go back and say, okay, uh, what they're going to do is pretend it's March, 2020 all over again, and everything is going to be based on what they thought in March, 2020, rather than what we've learned subsequently. And that's what I fear uh, that is going to happen uh, with these uh, judgments. The fact is, you know, the judge is going to say, well, this is a, you know, great, big pandemic that everybody's afraid of and we don't know what's going on and and nothing's happened in the last year scientifically that's the big fear that i i get from reading this decision at any rate so come on make me feel better come on john that's your job uh we printed another fifty thousand brochures the oh. deadly cost of uh lockdown harms and uh they are in the hands of volunteers all over the place that are busy distributing 50,000 brochures. We're going to go to another printing. So if you're asking yourself the question, what can I do? What can I do? Which thank, if you are asking that question, thank you. That's the right question to ask. And a lot of people feel that way, right? I'm just, you know, I feel angry, but I feel powerless. Mm. So contact the Justice Center by phone or email uh, info at gccf.ca and say, please mail me 100 brochures or please mail me uh, 50 brochures and put your snail mail address. We will mail those to you. You can distribute them, put them in mailboxes uh, in your neighborhood or, or in, in a different neighborhood where you don't live. If that's your preference, you can hand them out to friends, family, colleagues, uh, wherever you happen to meet or gather. Uh, if the health authorities so allow you to meet and gather and get the word out. And I think it's going to be a hit because people are, so relying on 
email and internet for a hundred percent of their information mm-hmm. or close to a hundred percent, which is fine. That's not, it's just the way it is. I don't mean that to be a, just describing reality. It's not that often these days that you get a brochure in your mailbox that has been delivered there. And especially with all these super boxes that have been built in most places in Canada, right? You don't even have mail delivery into your mailbox. So if you're coming home from work and there's a brochure that's in your mailbox or maybe nicely folded, so half of it is sticking out, you're going to tend to pick up the brochure. Now, of course, a big chunk of these will end up in the garbage can. That's par for the course. doesn't matter what the brochure is. Uh, but another big chunk of them are going to get read. And amongst the brochures that get read, there'll be some that will just get ripped up by angry pro-lockdown people. Uh, and some will reinforce the existing anti-lockdown convictions of the reader. But there's this third group of people that are open-minded. And I think that could be anywhere from uh, a fifth to a third to a quarter to half or more than half of the Canadian population is neither strongly pro-lockdown nor strongly anti-lockdown. And getting these brochures into the hands of people is going to be hugely helpful to educate the public with the facts and the more facts that we have in our head, uh, the easier it is to let go of the fear. Right. And I think there actually is a mock-up of the brochure on the website as well yes. that I can link to. Yeah. So if you want to review it before you make any decision as to whether you want to deliver it, you can take a look at it first, you know. And I think that uh, that would be the reasonable thing to do. So this is the first printing of a brochure for the Justice Center. So this is a new action that you're taking, is it? The first printing was in December. That was 10,000. Those have been distributed. Second printing was in January, 10,000. Those have been distributed. Uh, Third printing in March, 50,000. Those are out the door and being distributed as we speak. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Our goal is to print and distribute 1 million brochures and uh, get it into the, the hands and hearts and minds of Canadians so that we can return to a better health. Right. <laughs> For everybody, mm-hmm. better mental health, better physical health, gyms reopening, uh, people being able to enjoy life again without having uh, these uh, health authorities. You know, they, they take all the joy out of life. Like you, you can't, kids can't uh, play team sports. Uh, adults can't play team sports. We can't have a school play where parents attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter is going to go for her uh, third Dan Black Belt test. Uh, and the other two tests, I was there in the classroom, you know, wa- watching, being present and observing and being available. F- you know, I guess kids like it when their parents are there. And, you know, can't uh, can't do that. Uh, parents are barred from the martial arts studio. You know, and I want to conclude on that if we're coming near the end of the hour is the utter lack of compassion of these uh, health authorities while they themselves, uh, as well as all the public sector workers and the pensioners and the lawyers and accountants who are able to do 100% of their work from behind a computer screen, all these people, no financial impact. But how would the chief, how would Bonnie Henry or Dina Hinshaw or one of these other chief medical officers, how would they have liked it if they could only invite 10 people to their own wedding, okay, presupposing that they got married and that they enjoyed having more than 10 people at their wedding. How would they like it if they uh, were excluded from attending a funeral of uh, a family member or a loved one? Uh, how would they like it if they had to start living on $2,000 a month? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, check your privilege. And I would say, well, check your public sector privilege, because if you're a policeman or a firefighter or a federal government employee, provincial government employee, municipal government employee, social worker, any number of of public sector workers, how would you feel about lockdowns if you had to start living on $2,000 a month only? If the lockdown measures that had been introduced in uh, in every province If as part and parcel of the lockdown measures, if they had said every public sector employee, including the civil servants, but also including uh, teachers, nurses, doctors, everybody, everybody's going to start living on $2,000 a month. Lockdowns would have, they would have ended after a week. Yeah, no kidding. The the streets would have been full of, of, of public sector people screaming about how unjust and unfair it is that they have to live on $2,000 a month all of a sudden. 
Yeah. So they managed it quite well. They managed to get everybody scared, but to keep enough people satisfied so that they didn't get out there and protest. And, uh, and this shows, again, we're, we're not all in this together. This is a divide and conquer strategy mm. where the lockdowns, I, I don't think I've ever met somebody that didn't fall into these three groups. And that would be the public sector worker, the pensioner, and people who have a trade or occupation that they can do 100% of it from behind a computer screen. You mean lockdown those supporters? Those are the three groups. Yeah. Those, the those are the lockdown. Those are the lockdown supporters. Yeah. And you know, maybe there are a handful. I mean, maybe there are uh, you know some people outside of those three groups that that also support lockdowns. But I, I would say they're far and few in between. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's probably a pretty good place to to end it right there. Thanks a lot, John, for uh, giving us your thoughts on episode twelve of the second season of Justice with John Carpe. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin.